After Luke Slaughter signed off, Frontier Gentlemen signed on with its fourth episode. It was called Kendall's Last Stand and was one of the most gripping shows in the run. Come on. We'll never get across the clearing without them seeing us. Can you throw the hatchet? Very good at throwing. You watch. Together. One. Two. Three. Oh, blast. Fine bloody aim you've got. Quick. I can barely see them now. Shoot, and for Lord's sake, don't miss. Shoot! John Daner starred. Well, uh, Tony Ellis wrote it, directed it, produced it, everything. And I think it was one of his finest efforts. I know this, that Tony liked that show better than any show he had ever done in his life. And I think it showed. And I was very close to Tony. And he would very often refer to that show as with great affection. It was one of those shows that I think was so well written that uh, it played itself. When we returned to the Rosebud the next day, the Battle of Little Bighorn was over. As Lieutenant Snow had predicted, it had been a massacre. Custer's troops had been wiped out. Those other wounded under Major Reno's command were being carried aboard the riverboat. Five minutes of a roadshow followed, and then five more minutes of news. After a New York Philharmonic concert, Suspense signed on at 4.35, guest starring Carl Swenson and Kathy Lewis. The story, Five Buck Tip, is a thriller about a twin trying to escape the electric chair at the expense of his brother. It aired at 4 p.m. from KNX in Los Angeles. CBS had found multi-sponsorship for the series in late 1956. As mentioned earlier, William N. Robeson was also in charge of this production. Suspense. And the producer of radio's outstanding theater of thrills, the master of mystery and adventure, William N. Robeson. Am I my brother's keeper? Has often been the agonized cry of mankind when the troubles of his fellows have been heaped upon his shoulders. Our story tells of a man who was not his brother's keeper, but who was designed to be his brother's corpse. And it requires one actor to play identical twins. Now, dual identity roles are difficult enough in the visual medium, but they can be solved by technical tricks. In radio, they depend completely on the vocal skill of the actor. That is why we have asked one of radio's finest actors, Mr. Carl Swenson, to complete this assignment. Listen. Listen, then, as Mr. Swenson stars in The Five Buck Tip, which begins in exactly one minute. Another visit with Joe and Daphne Forsythe. Joe? Yeah, Daphne? You think I should go on a diet? No. But I'm adding weight. Only in the right places. Flatterer. Seriously, if I put on any more pounds, I'll be out of style. What style? The current one. It calls for that slim, chic look. The beanpole look, you mean. Boy, I don't get it. Here we are, citizens of the healthiest country on earth, with hundreds of different kinds of good food. And what are Americans doing? They're starving themselves. Well, it's fashionable. I don't want you to lose interest in my figure. Don't worry, I won't. Say, speaking of that, look at this. Here's a figure with real interest. Oh? $45 billion. 
It says here in the paper that the investment in United States savings bonds has reached more than $45 billion. What do you think of that figure? Mmm, that's a lot of money. And just think, every $3 invested in bonds pays back 4 That's real interest for you. I know. And every savings bond is guaranteed by the government. Right. Oh, Joe, I wish you cared about my figure the way you do about those bonds you buy every payday. Honey, I've got great interest in both. Well, you just see that you stay that way. And now... Five Buck Tip, starring Carl Swenson. A tale well calculated to keep you in... Suspense. I'd flown all the way from Cleveland to be with my brother on his last night, and there was no joyride. His picture was on page one of the Tribune under a big black headline. Governor denies appeal. Jardine to die tonight. On the plane, they all looked at me like I'd broken out of death row. I couldn't blame them. Tommy Jardine was not only my brother, he was my identical twin. At midnight, he'd be gone. This black shadow, this evil image of me that had forced me to run away and change my name so I could make it on the plane. At 5.05 p.m., as a cold winter sunset overtook the East Coast, yours truly, Johnny Dollar, signed on starring Bob Bailey in the Durango-Laramie matter. Bob Bailey's daughter, Roberta, was a teenager at the time. Why, it is painful. It, those were very good times. And like I say, afterwards, when radio died, and I mean it died with a big bang, it just died out there in California. They tried to move it back to New York, and when they tried to convert to TV, so many of the radio personalities couldn't make the conversion. And until other jobs opened up, like the sponsor jobs, there were a lot of radio stars that just went completely downhill. Especially, like my father, had nothing to fall back on. He's been an actor all his life. And by the time his radio show was over, he was almost 50. He weighed about 150 pounds, stood about five foot nine and a half, and they looked at him on television and said, you're not Johnny Dollar. And he said, but I am, I've been. And they said, no, no, we have to get a six foot tall guy that weighs about 200 pounds to play the part. It was sad, it was a very sad time when TV just wiped it out. There was a prejudice against uh, radio actors on the part of television producers when they came in. What I've read, at least, is that a lot of them were young whiz kids who came along and had a new toy. And they said, no, 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 if you worked in radio now, you've got your own way of doing things and this is TV. And actually, when you think that working in radio would give you a credential, back in the early 50s, it actually worked against you. It did, because if you think of it, radio is an entirely different form of acting. You relied completely on the sound man, the sound mixer, for any sound effects that needed to be put in. Although you stood in front of the microphone, you would move your arms occasionally and act a little. All the acting was in the voice, in what came out from inside of you. You could wheel someone up there in a wheelchair, and he would project over the radio his voice, his emotion. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar, has been covered extensively in episode 102 of Breaking Walls. When Dollar signed off, the FBI and Peace and War signed on from New York. After which, dramatic programming shifted back to the West Coast, 
Radio's remaining Hollywood directors cast familiar character actors for union-scale wages. Gunsmoke started on the air in 52, as we've mentioned, and network radio was beginning to die just at the time we were starting. I guess what I mean is that in those early days, if you were doing a, uh, a series and the series was canceled, something else popped up and you were told to start preparing for a show called such and such, which would go on the air next Tuesday. There was always something to replace the show that went off the air. By the end of the 50s, and certainly by the 60s, when a show went off the air, that was just the end of that half hour or that hour or that two hour segment and it was filled with something else and that something else usually came from new york it was a sad period for those of us who were fond of radio and enjoyed radio and indeed had been brought up in radio and it was not sour grapes throughout the 1950s norman mcdonald's gunsmoke remained radio's most popular show it aired sundays at 6:30 p.m with a repeat the following Saturday at 12.30 p.m. On February 23, 1958, they presented The Surgery. Around Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Gunsmoke, starring William Conrad, the story of the violence that moved west with young America, and the story of a man who moved with it. I'm that man. Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. The first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job, and it makes a man watchful and a little lonely. going to be all right, ain't you? Your wife is a sick woman, Aaron. Very sick woman. You don't seem hardly right. Lucy always been strong. She don't get sick. Well, she's sick now. Whatever have you been giving her? Oh, giving her pot herb tea. Strong. Real strong. All cured us up before. But it's not going to cure her now, Aaron. Pouring all that stuff down here has nearly killed her. You fix her up, Doc. It's your trade, ain't it? It'll be a day or two before we'll know anything. Before I can even do anything. What do you mean? She's too weak after all that stuff that you've been giving her to to stand an operation. I'll have to build her up. Operation? Well, there's there's just a chance that it'll it'll save her. Something's got to relieve that pressure. You aren't taking a knife to Lucy? It's the only thing I know to do it may not work. I can't promise you that it will, but she'll die, sure. Oh, no, no, no. You ain't going to take no knife to Lucy, Doc. No, she ain't that sick. I tell you, if you go on feeding her those herbs, she'll die. Well, you cut into her, she'll die, sure. No. 
No, Doc, get away from that door. Doc, I'm going in there and I'll take care now of you. Now, you listen to along. me. Your wife's got one chance. It isn't a very good chance, but she's got one. And I'm not going to let you take it away from her if I have to keep you out of there with a gun. When... Oh, Doc, you got no right. I've got when... no right to let her die either. I'm going to send for the marshal. He'll stop you. That's a good idea. That's a very good idea. Jed. Jed. Yeah? Come in here. Ma. Is it Ma? No, son. Your mother's all right. So far. What's Doc got the gun for? Oh, he won't let me go in there with your Ma. He wants to take a knife to her. A knife? I'm not here to hurt anybody, boy. I just want to try to save your mother's life. Now, I want you to go into town and bring back the marshal. The marshal? Yeah, that's what I said. Somebody's got to settle this thing. Paul? Yeah, you go along. Bring the marshal again. Law will protect a man's rights. But what'll happen to Ma? Go along, boy. Go along. Now, nothing will happen to you, Ma. Nothing gonna happen to her. Now, that's a fact. Go on, Jed. You get the marshal out here. Don't let him waste no time. If you say so, Pa. I say so. Go on, now. I'll take care of your Ma. I aim to take care of her. Gun or no gun. Just listen a minute, if you will. It seems to me that in the old days of radio, and I'm going back again to the 40s and 50s, the executives, whether men like Guy Della Chapa or Harry Ackerman or whomever, were men with an experience in and a feeling for the theatrical end of the business as opposed to the business end of radio. There was a wonderful meeting of the minds when you went in and said you wanted to do such and such a kind of show. They could they could picture and understand and either agree or disagree with what you had in mind, but they knew what you were talking about. It was really extraordinarily easy to get a conference or a meeting with the then CBS brass Usually it was one man or two men, and that one man or those two men said yes or no to your idea, and you either went with it or didn't. There was no feeling of committee and that somebody upstairs would say yes or no. Somebody ought to set Jack Benny straight about how to make a movie because he's at it again. When you join him later on today, CBS Radio's misguided matinee idol will attempt his own version of a famous movie. Although the last new episode of the Jack Benny program aired on May 22, 1955, between October of 1956 and June of 1958, CBS aired the best of Benny in his familiar 705 time slot. With the home insurance company paying for the time, even Benny repeats attracted a sponsor. After Benny, Henry Morgan's comedy panel show, Says Who, took to the air. You think you are hearing my voice. But unless you know how to use your gramophone properly, what you are hearing may be something grotesquely unlike any sound that has ever come from my lips. Can you identify that voice? If you can, you may win a jackpot of wonderful prizes in radio's new, exciting, fun game, Says Who? (laughs) 
Says Who debuted alongside The Stan Freeberg Show on Sunday, July 14, 1957. It was part of a week in which CBS Radio added $765,000 in new billings. Says Who would be sponsored every other week by Look Magazine. Ladies and gentlemen, a good evening to you. And welcome to Says Who. It's a game of sound reasoning where we have new fun with old sounds. In just a moment, we're going to be listening to a recorded voice. And then our panel of experts right here will fire questions in an effort to identify that voice. On the firing line tonight is one of the top sharpshooters of the sports writing fraternity, Jimmy Cannon. Good evening. Next, a talented lady from television and the film screen who calls everybody a good bunny. And I think she's the only performer to get fan mail from Peter Rabbit. Wendy Barry. <laughs> Comes now from way down Texas Way, a radio and television humorist, a writer, a lecturer. Well, you know, I could mention many more of his talents, but it would only embarrass him. Go ahead and embarrass me, John. I should have known better to say that about anyone from Texas. John Henry Falk. <laughs> now, panel, you have just three minutes to track down our first mystery voice. For each no answer to get to the rules of the game, the listener sending in the suggestion receives $5. If you sound sleuths fail to come up with the correct identification, an extra 25 is added to that listener's prize money. Now, before we hear our first voice, our announcer, Hal Sims, will tell the home listeners who this well-known gentleman is. Our panelists cannot hear me. The mystery voice you are about to hear is movie star Adolf Monshu. I'm always thinking I'm free. 